The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Chapter 18 of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. The Voice. It was like the glow of a firefly. It flitted here and there, lancing its tiny steps of light indefatigably through the darkness. From somewhere without, in the distance, muffled, there came faintly the rumbling of wheels, the clatter of a horse's hoofs on the pavement. There was no other sound. Jimmy Dale rose from his hands and knees, and, with the diminutive flashlight switched off now, stood staring around him in the darkness. Under the black silk mask, his forehead furrowed. This was one of Mother Margot's rooms, the room from which the phantom had so mysteriously disappeared on that first night. He had searched here before, more than once, in an effort to discover the secret of the phantom's disappearance, but he had never found anything. Tonight, because he had never been satisfied with his previous efforts, and because he had now been afforded a better opportunity of searching the place than ever before, he had returned to it again. He had been at it for two hours now, and still he had found nothing. Both Mother Margot and the Toxin had warned him to beware of the place, that it was a trap, both had warned him that the phantom asked nothing better than to lure him here. He shook his head. That might well have been true of a month ago, when, in the guise of Isaac Shiftel, alias Gentleman Laroque, the phantom's unaccountable disappearance from this room before his, Jimmy Dale's, eyes might naturally have been relied upon to bring him back without loss of time in the hope of getting at the bottom of the mystery. But not today. It was too long ago now. If, as a trap, it had not proved effective almost immediately after it was baited, the phantom, from the standpoint of pure logic, must long since have given over any hope of it ever proving effective as a trap at all. Jimmy Dale smiled grimly. He had, in spite of warnings, invaded the place almost immediately after that night, and he had not been able to find even a trap, let alone the secret of the phantom's disappearance. Nor was Mother Margot in the secret. He was convinced of that. True, she had been installed here by the Phantom when the latter had been forced to vacate the premises after the police raid, and she had obviously been installed here for the purpose of keeping any stranger from renting the rooms, and therefore by her occupancy of safeguarding that secret for the Phantom. But of its nature he was sure she was ignorant. He doubted, indeed, if the Phantom trusted anyone to that extent. But in any case, Mother Margot was away tonight. And so tonight's conditions offered him the opportunity for a search that, prolong it as he chose, was almost guaranteed against any interruption, or, as he felt confident now, any risk of the place proving a trap. Mother Margot was away. He did not know where she was. It did not matter. Presumably there was devil's work afoot again tonight, 
and she was engaged in her share of it. He only knew that for the first time since she had succeeded the phantom as the tenant of these rooms, she had absented herself from her usual haunts. As Smarlinghue, who at her request had haunted the dens and dives of the underworld for one English Steve last night, he had been free, without risk of bringing any suspicion upon the character of Smarlinghue, to seek her out openly at her pushcart, which covered her real activities, on Thompson Street that morning. But she had not been there. She had, however, in view of what had transpired the previous night, obviously expected him, for he had found a message waiting for him with an old Italian who had his cart next to hers. "'You smarly?' the old Italian had said. "'Margot go away one, two day. Come back.' Through the darkness, Jimmy Dale stared around him, his brows still knitted. The best opportunity he had ever had of searching these rooms had been his tonight, and he had seized it. But was there any use in continuing the search? He had the rest of the night before him, for that matter, if he chose to devote it to that purpose. But was it worthwhile? He had covered every inch of the floor, every inch of the walls up to a reasonable height, and his search had gone utterly unrewarded. He had been minute, painstaking, exact, thorough to a degree, and he had found nothing. Was there any use in going all over it again? He half turned away toward the door, but halted again. There was a secret here, even if he had never been able to find it. There was a clue here, even if so far it had proved but a phantom clue. That fact would not down. He hesitated an instant, and then with a shrug of his shoulders, moved softly halfway across the room. Well, once more, then. He began to reconstruct again the scene of that first night, here in this room, the inner one of the two that Mother Margot now occupied. It was exactly here he had stood when Isaac Shiftel, stripped of his disguise, had suddenly turned off the light, and in the ensuing darkness had vanished, as that trite saying had it, into thin air. The man could not have gone by the door, because there was only one door, and he, Jimmy Dale, had been blocking the doorway. Nor could the man have gone by the single window, because at that time the police had been on guard in the alleyway outside. Through the wall or the floor, then? Yes. But how? Where? Neither wall nor floor showed any. Out of the darkness, without warning, there came suddenly a low ugly laugh. "'The Grey Seal!' said a voice. In an instant, strained and tense, his automatic whipped from his pocket and outflung before him, Jimmy Dale drew back against the wall. A trap, after all, the trap he had so logically proven to have outlived its usefulness. He strained his eyes through the blackness. Nothing. He could see nothing. Nor was there any further sound. A minute passed. Was it a minute, or some vast, immeasurable aeon of time? He stood rigid, motionless, waiting. "'Where?' said a voice abruptly. Jimmy Dale turned his head. His automatic swung swiftly. The voice seemed to have come almost from his elbow. Then his jaws locked hard together. "'No, it was from there. They were playing with him, were they?' A cat-and-mouse game. Well, then, he—' A voice spoke again. 
Worth anywhere from thirty to fifty thousand. Easy money. Jimmy Dale pushed back his hat, and above his mask flirted away a bead of sweat from his forehead. He understood now. There wasn't anyone in the room save himself. It wasn't a trap. It was only uncanny. He was simply listening to snatches of a conversation that came from the nowhere, out of the darkness. He leant forward a little, striving to the utmost to place the direction of the sounds. The voices, he realized now, while quite distinct, had been curiously heavy and uneven. He nodded sharply to himself. A pipe, a hollow space, almost anything might act as a conductor for the sound waves and bring them here from no little distance at that. Once more a voice broke through the stillness. "'Easy money, yes, but old Twisty Mun's no fool, and neither is Kid Greg. The stuff will be pinched by now, but we've plenty of time left. Enough to see that there are no mistakes made.' Again there came the low, ugly laugh. "'There won't be any. One o'clock at Twisty's.' The voice ended as abruptly as though, if speaking over a telephone, the wire had been suddenly cut. There seemed to Jimmy Dale no other way to describe it. He stared around him in a queer, helpless way. Now the voices had seemed to come from here, now from there, his lips twisted in grim self-mockery. The longer he had listened, the more confusing it had become. The voices simply came from everywhere in the room. Had they ended now? The tiny glow of the flashlight played for an instant on the crystal of his watch. It was fourteen minutes past twelve. Noiselessly now, Jimmy Dale moved across the room to a chair. The sort of finality with which that last sentence had been broken off held out little hope, he felt intuitively, of his hearing anything more. But there was a chance. He sat down quietly. Strange! Where had the voices come from? From below? Above? Where? He did not know. He knew only that one of those voices must be the phantoms. It did not require proof. It was axiomatic. He could not locate the direction from which the voices had come, but the opening through which the phantom had once vanished from this room was obviously the medium through which the voices entered. How cleverly deduced! He snapped at himself mentally. The only trouble was that after prolonged and laborious search he had not been able to locate that opening either. His fingers played softly in a curiously caressing way over his automatic. It hadn't been any trap. The allusion to the grey seal that had so startled him had been only a snatch of the conversation which had at first, through some cause or other that he was unable to define, reached him only in broken fragments. Or perhaps, after all, it was a trap the other way around. A trap for the trapper. If he could not locate the voices here, it might not possibly be so difficult to do so at, say, one twisty months at one o'clock. He sat there in the darkness, listening, his mind at work. One of the voices had been the phantoms, that was beyond question or doubt. But which one of the two it was, he did not know. He could, he was certain, have recognized Gentleman Laroque's alias the phantom's voice anywhere under ordinary circumstances, but here, due unquestionably to the mysterious way in which the sound waves had been transmitted, all sense of inflection had been lost. Nor did the conversation itself, as he went over it again in his mind, help to differentiate, in that respect, 
one speaker from the other. Either one of the two, from what had been said, might have been the phantom. Twisty months at one o'clock. He smiled grimly. One of the two voices, at least, possibly both of them, would be at Twisty Munns at one o'clock. Well, if nothing further eventuated here, he, too, would be at Twisty Munns at that hour. His search, the hours he had spent here, had perhaps not been so fruitless after all. It was an even chance, at least, that, in spite of the continued silence in this room now, he would hear the voice again tonight. And if he did? His face hardened suddenly. Last night he had held the phantom at his mercy. Last night he could have shot to kill, before the man had even been aware of his presence. And last night, because he had failed to realize that it was a thing, blood-flecked with murder, a thing that preyed upon every decency in life, and not a human being, the phantom had escaped. Last night this had happened. There would be no second time. There was another life at stake, hers the toxins. Last night he had jeopardized that life because he had not fought the phantom with the phantom's own weapons, but all that was now at an end. And as he sat there listening, and there was still no further sound, he found himself strangely, abnormally calm, strangely callous even, as though this decision were but commonplace and one of everyday occurrence. He asked now only for one more meeting with the phantom, where or how it did not matter just once more the minutes passed the tiny flashlight winked again through the darkness and lighted up the dial of jimmie dale's watch it was twenty-five minutes of one jimmie dale stood up there was evidently nothing more to be heard here or if there was and he waited any longer then the chance of hearing anything at twisty munns must go by the board and as a choice between the two he very much inclined toward Twisty Munns now. He moved softly through the connecting doorway, and traversed the adjoining room that opened on the hall. Here the door opened and closed silently behind him, and Jimmy Dale, lost in the darkness of the unlighted hallway, reached the rear door of the tenement and stepped out into a small backyard. A moment more, and he was over the fence, and, slipping his mask from his face, was running noiselessly along a lane. Two blocks away, he emerged upon a dingy, ill-lighted and uninviting street. He smiled a little whimsically, as he pulled his soft felt hat somewhat rakishly to one side and well down over his eyes, and, hunching the perfectly fitting dinner coat at one of the shoulders, turned up the collar around his neck. True, the costume was hardly de rigueur in the east side, but he was Jimmy Dale, not smiling you tonight. He shrugged his shoulders. Well, did it matter? He was not on his way to attend any public function, and as for the streets, there were always the shadows of the buildings to hug a little closer, always a loose, slouching gait to assume. Twisty Munn, Kid Gregg, what was the game these two were playing tonight? He shook his head impatiently. That did not matter either. It mattered only that the Phantom was concerned in their movements. It was common knowledge in the underworld that Twisty Munn was a buyer for a certain class of apparently honest establishments, where, if the alibi were good enough, stolen goods, disguised of course, were offered over the counters to the public, at prices well in excess of what could be obtained through the underground channels employed by the regular fences. It was profitable for all concerned, even taking into account 
the commission charged by the crafty twisty mun who lived apparently for the benefit of the police in a condition approaching almost abject poverty in a squalid ill-furnished room at the top of a seedy and somewhat questionable tenement over in the direction of the east river kid gregg less known save by the inner circle of the underworld which latter had already marked him for preferment was a young and budding crook still outside the ken of the police who showed exceeding promise in the profession he had chosen in a word neither of them had ever had any dealings or were in any way connected with gentleman laroque's alias the phantom's gang jimmie dale's dark eyes narrowed grimly as he went along the conclusion was somewhat obvious the phantom was by no means averse to plucking the plums ripened by someone else and it was fairly evident that in some way or another he had got wind of one that had been ripened by twisty mun kid gregg it looked very much therefore as though the night were likely to develop into a three-cornered game counting in himself jimmie dale with the added possibility that the trumps perhaps might be in the hand that neither twisty mun nor kid gregg in the first place nor the phantom in the second suspected jimmie dale covered block after block at a swinging stride his mind reverted to mother margot's rooms it was strange where those voices had come from he could not tear the building down to find out he had already known there was a secret exit from that room the voices in that respect had not proved anything further his mind mulled on a search of the rooms adjacent to mother margot's offered no prospect of help in the solution of the problem if the room itself where he knew the secret exit to be was so apparently search-proof what better chance would any other room offer or why as a matter of fact should the secret exit even lead into any other room well the cellar then for the phantom could not have gone up through the roof there was no cellar the ground floor was a sort of basement in itself those voices cycles he was beginning all over again he shook his head in self-exasperation and with a mental effort dismissed these thoughts from his mind he had almost reached his destination and the immediate present demanded his full attention under a street lamp he looked at his watch twelve minutes to one he nodded he was well on time just ahead of him was the three-story tenement where twisty mun made his home End of chapter 18。Chapter 19 of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Jackals. The street was deserted. The tenement itself was dark. Not a light showed from any window. But Twisty Munn lived in an upstairs room at the rear therefore the fact that no light could be seen from the street had no bearing whatever on twisty mun jimmie dale stepped suddenly into the doorway the door itself the entrance common to heaven alone knew how many who hived in wretchedness and squalor within and to whom a latchkey would have been not far removed from mockery was unlocked as he had expected he moved noiselessly into the hall the place was close and dank to the nostrils also it reeked with the odour of garlic it was dark too but through the murk he could just make out the stairs ahead of him and to the left there was a curious tightening of jimmie dale's lips as he moved forward and tested the tread of the first stair cautiously 
Yes, he knew the breed. Old and in disrepair, the stairs would certainly shriek their protest to high heaven if any liberty were taken with them. But it was Jimmy Dale of the old days, Jimmy Dale of the days of Larry the Bat and the rickety stairs of the old sanctuary, worse even than these stairs were, whereas life had literally depended upon his silence a score of times as he went upward now. He gained the first landing. There were doors around him here, and, because they were flimsy doors and flimsy partitions, from behind them the night sounds reached him. The restless movement of a sleeper, the sick, querulous cry of a child, a stertorous snore. Twelve minutes of one. Ten now, wasn't it? There were three flights. At the third landing Jimmy Dale paused for an instant to adjust the black silk mask over his face again, then stole forward feeling out with his hand along the wall toward a thin, irregular thread of light that seeped out from under the ill-fitting threshold of a door at the rear end of the hall. Twisty Munn, at least, was evidently keeping the rendezvous. Faintly, no more than a murmur, voices reached Jimmy Dale from the other side of the door now as he stood before it. And now a picklock in his hand was silently at work. Perhaps half a minute passed. Then, by the barest fraction of an inch at a time, the door-knob turned without sound under the slim, trained, sensitive fingers, and the door opened by a crack. The murmur from within became distinct, disintegrated itself into words and sentences. "'Sure, the goods is all right, but what about the rest of it? The guys I have to slip these over to ain't taking chances.' Not if you's handed em the stuff for nothing and paid them for taking it. The door opened another crack. Twisty Munn and Kid Gregg. Yes, that was what the voice in Mother Margot's room had said. Jimmy Dale could just see the two. They were at a table in the upper corner of the room. His eyes narrowed. There was what looked like a small fortune in the shape of jewellery on the table between them. Twisty Munn. The stoop-shouldered, almost hunchbacked form of the shabby old man was bent forward over the table, while his thin, hooked fingers clawed at the jewels, picking up one after the other to hold it close to short-sighted, squinting eyes. And opposite him, Kid Gregg, young, in an over-loud checked suit, a peaked cap pulled so low over his forehead as almost to hide the small, roving black eyes, scowled in evident impatience. "'Oh, it's sewed up, tight!' The letter snapped. Ain't I told you's that? Sure you've told me that, agreed the old man sharply. Two days ago you's told me you's had it all fixed for tonight, and that everything was safe, and that you's bring me the sparklers. Well, that's all right, you's have brought them, and they're all right. But I ain't heard yet how safe they are, and that's what puts the deal cross with the crowd I works for, see? A cigarette dangled from Kid Gregg's upper lip. With the tip of his tongue, he deftly transferred it to the corner of his mouth. "'Well, then, listen,' he grinned complacently. "'Some job, Twisty, and all me own, see. I used to know a guy that worked for old Frooms up on the avenue, and he was forever shooting off his face about the sparklers the family wore. Well, a month ago I gets a job there myself, taken on regular. Get me?' "'Polishing the hardwood floors and keeping the windows at the mansion washed. "'Ah, say, it was soft. "'I hadn't been there a week 
before I knew where the combination of the safe was kept, in a drawer in the library, right alongside the safe itself, so's Mrs. Frooms wouldn't have to walk far to get it. Kid Greg chuckled, and, sucking at his cigarette, only to find it out, began to search through his pockets for a match. Jimmy Dale stared. Frooms! It was Martin K. Frooms, of course, the retired broker. He knew Frooms very well indeed, and on several stag occasions had been in Frooms' house. And Frooms knew him, as Jimmy Dale, a fellow member of the St. James Club. So that was where that hole of jewellery on the table there had come from. What was it the voice in Mother Margot's room had said? Anywhere from thirty to fifty thousand. He could well believe it. Frooms was an exceedingly wealthy man, and, besides a wife, had two daughters who moved constantly in society. "'Go on,' prompted Twisty Munn impatiently. "'Watch me,' boasted Kid Greg. "'I could have made the pinch any time, but then I'd have had to make me getaway and duck out a little old New York. I wasn't for that, not some. I've still got me job polishing the floors, and tomorrow morning I'll be polishing them the same.' as though nothing had happened. See? Some day the bulls may write up me autobiography and keep me photograph handy to look at when they wants to see something handsome. But not if I sees em first. Nix on that stuff. So far I'm a nice, quiet, hard-working young man. Get me? Well, there ain't no hurry, and I sits tight, keeping my lamps open, looking for goats. And I don't have to wait long, neither. One day I was out on a windowsill washing the window, and I hears the boss in the next room handing out a Sunday school spiel like he was talking to a naughty son. From a business standpoint, says the old man, this is nearly lost you to your job here, and no man ever made anything out of himself on that basis. And from a moral standpoint, he says, it's simply the road that leads from bad to worse. Jimmy Dale, an ominous droop at the corners of his mouth, dared another half inch of the door space as Kid Gregg paused for a moment to drag on his cigarette. Was there a wall switch for that single, dangling incandescent that lighted the room? Yes, there it was, just inside the door. He could almost have reached in and touched it from where he stood. Well, that's all I heard, went on Kid Gregg. But take it from me, I watches to see who comes out of that room. Say, can you beat it? It's a little red-headed dude named Culver. That's a typewriter, or secretary, or something like that, to the boss. After that, there's nothing to it. Culver's the bird I'm after, and I gets his number for fair. Some high roller with his dinky shirts and his imitation diamond shirt studs. He don't live there with the boss, you understand, but he dresses up every night like he owned a bank, and hits the high spots on the first speed. Youse knows the kind, don't youse? Twisty Munn was twining the long, bony fingers of his hands in and out of the heap of brooches, pins, rings and pendants in front of him, seemingly fascinated by the fiery little gleams of light that he made to flash from their countless facets. "'Up the river,' observed Twisty Munn, "'there's a whole cageful of birds that dress up all the time, only they don't sport the shirt studs any more. I get yous. What did yous do with Mr. Culver?' Kid Greg indulged in a fresh cigarette. There was a smirk of unabashed conceit upon his face as he blew a smoke ring in the air. Him? He's down at Hoy Luz. Twisty Munn leaned suddenly across the table. What's that? he demanded tensely. 
Hoy lose? You said it, nodded Kid Greg complacently. He's gone bye-bye down at Hoy lose with a nice little pipe of coke laid out beside the bunk. Twisty Munn squinted blare eyes at the other. I don't get yous, he grunted after a moment. That don't stick nothing on him. I don't get yous. Kid Greg smiled pityingly. That's why yous won't never be nothing more than yous are today, Twisty, he murmured. Just running around and doing the dirty work. It's the bean that counts. Yous close your face, snapped Twisty Munn. Go on, spill the rest of it. All right, grinned Kid Greg. I fixed it up for tonight, after I tipped off another guy I knows to make up with Culver about a week ago. My pal plays the game, savvy? He chums up with Culver and promises to show Culver some of the real goods around town. You gets it now, don't you? Tonight the two of them goes to Hoy Loos, and they starts in with a drink, and Culver gets a pill slipped into his, and then he's laid out peaceful on a bunk, just as though he'd got stewed on too many pipes. Soft, eh? He'll be there tomorrow morning. He don't know who me pal is, because somehow me pal ain't got a good memory even for his own name. And besides, being doled up for the occasion with a little waxed moustache and a cute little beard, you'd have taken him for a French count. Which he ain't. Well, the bulls get Mr. Culver there in the morning, and Oilu gets a piece of the money you's a going to hand out, because he's got to stand for a police fine. Kid Greg paused and grinned at Twisty Munn as the latter puckered the leathery skin of his forehead into wrinkles. "'Never mind about the bean stuff this time,' said Twisty Munn, gruffly. "'I ain't wise yet, but I'll say it begins to listen good. How do you hang it on to him?' "'The easiest thing you know,' said the kid, cheerfully. "'A letter, that's what. There's a letter in the mail now that the police gets in the morning, just about the same time that the family on the avenue wakes up and throws a fit when they finds the safe open and the sparklers gone. The letter just says that maybe the police would like to know that a guy blew into Hong Lu's tonight and got stewed to the eyes hidden the pipe and got frisked of a bag full of rings and jewels and stuff by some yeggs that was floating around there, and it's signed a friend. I guess that's all to the mustard, ain't it? That takes care of the missing goods. The bulls slip over there, and they find it's my red-headed friend Culver, the typewriter expert, for Mr. Froome, that owns the safe that's been cracked. Twisty Man blinked. That's all right, he said judiciously. But it don't actually prove he pulled the job. If he was frisked, which he wasn't, then— Sure he was frisked, said Kid Gregg, with a vicious grin. All this happened— before I went up to the nabob's house an hour ago. That was midnight, you understand, and the Froom's bunch was all in bed. I wasn't taking no chances. He was frisked all right. The kid, with studied effect, blew another smoke ring in the air. I frisked him, of one of those near-diamond shirt studs of his that you can buy from the hawkers at three for a nickel. Enlightenment was dawning on Twisty Munn's wily countenance. Say that again? he whispered hoarsely. Sure, said Kid Greg. That's what. You's know of anything that's easier to lose without you's being wise to it than a shirt stud that falls out when you's are pawing over the stuff in a safe you's cracked. That's where it is now, on the floor up there in the Froom's library, 
under some papers that was yanked out of the safe. For a moment, Twisty Munn stared at his companion, then his long, bony hand shot out across the table. "'You'll so go a long way, kid. Shake!' he cackled admiringly. "'Take it from me. Yous will. A long way.' "'Yous bet your life, and nothing but dust behind me,' agreed Kid Greg boastfully. "'Yous said something, Twisty.' "'S'help me,' gulped Twisty Munn. His fingers clawed the jewels on the table again. "'A sweet a hole as ever I've seen, and open and shut. Open and shut.' He pushed the heap suddenly toward Kid Greg. "'Put em back in that little sack,' he gloated. "'I'll take em, Kid. There's big money on this all round.' Under his mask, a dull red had suffused Jimmie Dale's cheeks. Subconsciously, almost, his hand had crept into his pocket, and his fingers had closed around the stock of his automatic. It was brutal work, miserable, inhuman work. A shirt stud, three for a nickel, and five, ten, fifteen years, the best of a man's life, behind the drear walls and the steel bars of Sing Sing. Was it possible that men like these two lived, festering God's green earth? His automatic came from his pocket. They were stuffing the jewels into a small canvas bag now. Well, the game wasn't finished yet. There was still another hand to play. The little sack would prove a convenient receptacle. It ought not to take but a moment more before all the jewels were inside and— Jimmie Dale drew suddenly back from the doorway. Had he forgotten? In the natural sweep of anger, in the hot-blooded fury that the scene in there had brought him, had he forgotten those voices in Mother Margot's rooms? What was that now? A creak upon the stairs? Yes, he was sure of it. Another. One o'clock. It must be after one o'clock. Someone was coming. Every faculty alert, he crouched back now, farther back, away from the door, where he was lost in the darkness of the hall. Yes, there was someone almost at the head of the stairs now, coming stealthily, almost without sound. Only once in a while a faint, protesting squeak from a stair-tread that would not be audible inside Twisty Munn's room. Those jewels, Twisty Munn, Kid Greg, were the lesser issue now. It was the Phantom who had brought him here, the hope that the Phantom would come himself in person. Tense, silent, Jimmie Dale crouched there. The Phantom. If it were the Phantom in any one of the characters that he, Jimmie Dale, could recognize, there would be no failure this time, such as there had been last night. Whoever passed from the hall into that room would stand out, if only for an instant, clearly defined in the lighted doorway, and an instant would be enough. A second passed, still another. A dark form bulked at the head of the stairs. It was joined by another. Two of them, then. And now there was no sound, yet the two dark forms there moved. They came on, down the hall, like queer, wavering, intangible shapes that seemed almost like brain hallucinations in the darkness. Outflung before him, Jimmie Dale's automatic held a bead on the doorway. They had stopped there now, stopped in that thin crack of light that seeped out through the inch of open door that he himself had left, and the face of one came into the light. Bunty Myers! It was not the Phantom, it was Bunty Myers, the Phantom's unholy chief of staff, but both of the men could not be the phantom. The other. Who was the other? A whisper came. A revolver barrel glinted in the light thread. 
Jimmie Dale strained forward. The other! Just a glimpse of the man's face! There could be no disguise that would blind his eyes to Gentleman Laroque, the real man, any longer. No disguise, however clever, that could— the door crashed inward, a wave of light flooded out into the hall, and the two forms at the door leapt forward into the room. But, for the single instant Jimmy Dale had asked, the light had shone on the second man's face, and upon Jimmy Dale there surged a sense of bitter disappointment that seemed to engulf him, seemed to hold him momentarily stunned. Neither was the second man the phantom. It was only the kitten, one of the gang that used to rendezvous in the back upstairs room of Wally Carrigan's club. The kitten, who only last night had—well, he might have known. It was the phantom's way. It was the phantom and Bunty Myers he had heard talking. He knew that now. But the phantom had left the actual work, as he had done a score of times before, to his tools and pawns. His mind seemed strangely numbed. He stared into the room. Two men had just leaped through that lighted doorway. It was like some scene flashing upon a cinema screen, wasn't it? Shirt studs, three for a nickel and the best of a man's life behind the bars of Sing Sing. He shook himself free as from some clogging mental weight. Yes, that was what it meant, whether Bunty Myers or Kid Gregg came off the victor. And there wasn't any other issue now, because the Phantom wasn't here. He crept forward to the door. Old Twisty Munn was cringing in a corner, twining his claw-like fingers in and out of each other, licking at his lips, his face grey with fear. On the table stood the little canvas bag, tied now with a string at the top, and behind the table Kid Gregg, a cigarette still dangling from his upper lip, had risen from his chair, and was staring with a queer, inane smile into the muzzle of Bunty Meyer's revolver, a yard or so away. "'Put up your hands!' snarled Bunty Myers. "'Sure!' smiled Kid Gregg, and, the revolver in his hand, previously hidden by the edge of the table, whipped up the weapon and fired. It was answered by almost simultaneous reports as Bunty Myers and the kitten fired together. It was answered by a scream of terror from Twisty Munn, and then the crash of the overturned table as Kid Gregg spun half around like a spent top and pitched against it. But Jimmy Dale, too, was in action now. From the edge of the door jamb, his hand shot forward, closed upon the electric light switch, and the room was in darkness, and the next instant he'd flung himself forward across the room. The little canvas bag! He had marked the exact spot on the floor where it had fallen from the table. Queer, this scuffling of feet around him, savage oaths, snarls of confusion, doors opening somewhere below in the tenement, the creak of stairs, and—yes, here it was. His hand closed upon the bag and thrust it into his pocket. He turned and sprang for the doorway again. Something blocked his way, struck at him viciously, clutched at his clothing. He struck back with a short-armed jab, tore himself free, and lunged forward again. A revolver flash lanced through the blackness behind him. Another. Twisty Munn still screamed in terror, and a bedlam seemed loosed now throughout the tenement. But Jimmy Dale had gained the door. He slammed it shut behind him, and, springing for the stairs, took them three and four at a jump. A man holding a candle, peering upward from the landing below, blocked his way for an instant, and went down before Jimmy Dale's rush. Two more flights to go. Doors opened. Frightened faces were thrust out. There came the cries of children, and then from above the pound of feet, racing as madly as his own down the upper stairs. Jimmy Dale laughed strangely at himself. That would be Bunty Myers and the kitten, but they mattered nothing now. There had been murder above. Kid Gregg was dead, and their one concern would be to hunt cover 
without loss of time, because if they were known to Twisty Munn, they were in desperate case indeed. He was not concerned with any pursuit from Bunty Myers or the kitten. It was a question only of what margin he himself had before the uproar here would have brought the police upon the scene. It was the shouts and yells that pursued him from the awakened and terrified occupants of the tenement wherein lay his real source of danger. A minute. That was all he asked. The margin of a minute. He risked a leap of almost half the length of the lower stairs, stumbled at the bottom, recovered himself, jumped for the front door, wrenched it open, and dashed out. The street was still empty. Thank God! He ran like a deer for the corner, gained it, doubled at the next one, and then dropped into a nonchalant walk. End of chapter 19《Chapter Twenty of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. At a quarter to three. He was safe now. He laughed shortly, without mirth. Safe. Yes, for the moment. But the night wasn't ended yet. He labored under no delusions on that score. The rendezvous at Twisty's, instead of the hoped-for meeting with the Phantom, had left him with the heritage of a little canvas bag whose physical contents became but a handful of miserable, worthless baubles compared with the potentialities it held for a long-term penitentiary sentence for an innocent man. Nothing that had transpired at Twisty Munns had changed by one iota the vile, low, cunning trap that Kid Gregg had laid for his victim and had now paid for with his own life. The police would receive the letter the police would find that shirt-stud at the scene of the robbery, find this young fool Culver at Hoy Loos, and find in Culver's shirt that a stud was missing from amongst its fellows. Jimmy Dale's face darkened now, as he turned at the next street and headed over in the direction of the Bowery. Young fool! Yes, that was it. Why should he take any further risk? He did not know Culver. He knew nothing about Culver, except that he had a red head and was evidently somewhat of a bounder, who probably very richly deserved what— No, he knew more than that. He knew that Culver was innocent. And then a smile came to Jimmy Dale's lips, a half-whimsical, half-troubled smile. Yes, of course, it was inevitable. He knew that. He had known it all along. Why else had he taken the risk of snatching up that little bag in Twisty Man's room? Well, then? Hoy lose? He shook his head. He would find nothing there but a limp, red-headed boy, drugged into unconsciousness. He could do nothing with Culver, for, even if he managed to get Culver out of and away from the dope joint, there still remained the one outstanding, damning piece of evidence in the shape of that shirt-stud in the library of the Froome's home. Neither would Culver's removal from Hoyloos offset the letter that the police would receive, simply because they did not find the boy there, for they would find that Culver had been there and had spent most of the night there. Equally, there were no means of intercepting that letter. There was only one alternative. Jimmy Dale shrugged his shoulders, and again the whimsical smile broke across his lips. It was perhaps a fortunate thing for Culver that he, Jimmy Dale, was not red-headed too. He hurried on now, breaking at times almost into a run. There was only one way, and, yes, he saw that way clearly enough now. It remained merely a question of whether by any chance the robbery at the Froome's mansion would be discovered 
before he could act. It was not likely, since Kit Gregg had said the household had all retired by midnight, but it nevertheless left the matter of time an unknown factor, whose latent possibilities were by no means to be ignored. Well, he would lose no time. Near the Bowery, in an all-night café, he entered the telephone booth. He gave the number of his residence on Riverside Drive, and as he waited for the connection, into his dark eyes, strangely, there crept a softer light. Old Jason would answer the phone. Faithful old Jason, butler to the father, more than butler to the son. Despite injunctions, despite the nights, many and many of them, when he, Jimmy Dale, did not return at all, Jason would even now probably be maintaining his self-appointed vigil in the armchair, in the vestibule, waiting for his master Jim, and almost certainly asleep. Jason was an old man, and nature was stronger than the flesh. Well, it was Jason's way, a rather splendid way, a way of great devotion. Strange? No, not strange. It was just Jason. Jason knew perhaps too little, or too much. Enough, in any case, so that the old man lived in constant anxiety anent the safety of his master Jim, and— "'Yes, hello, that you, Jason?' said Jimmy Dale quickly. "'Yes, sir, master Jim, sir.' the old man answered. "'Listen, Jason,' said Jimmy Dale. "'Rouse up Benson and send him down here with the light car as fast as he can make it. Tell him the palace. He knows where that is.' "'Yes, sir. At once,' Jason replied. And then, a curious hesitancy, a curious yearning in his voice. "'Is there any—anything else, Master Jim, sir?' "'Yes,' said Jimmy Dale, sharply. "'You've been sitting up again, Jason.' Jimmie Dale's smile belied the severity of his tone. How many times had he used exactly the same words to Jason, and with probably the same effect? "'Go to bed, Jason. Good night.' "'Yes, sir, Master Jim,' said Jason. "'Good night, sir.' Jimmie Dale hung up the receiver and went out into the street again, making for the Bowery now, and walking in an uptown direction. It would save time to meet Benson by part of the way." By the time he walked to the palace saloon, Benson should have about reached there, too. He began a mental calculation as he went along. Say, twenty-five minutes for Benson to get downtown, then another twenty for himself, Jimmy Dale, to reach his objective on Fifth Avenue. Still another twenty for the work there was to do. And yes, that was pretty close figuring, though it gave Benson, who was far safer away from the car, and would have to walk, a leeway of twenty minutes. Allow an extra ten minutes, then, as a factor of safety. That made seventy-five minutes, an hour and a quarter. He looked at his watch. It was exactly half-past one. That would bring it, then, to a quarter to three. He nodded. A quarter to three. He could depend on Benson literally to the extent of his life, and indeed had done so on more than one occasion. Benson, as a chauffeur, was almost on the same plane with Jason as a butler. As he'd remarked many times before, there was perhaps no man in New York who was served as he was, and it was not a service of money. Rare thing? Yes. But it was true. It did exist in the world. Thank God for it. Jimmy Dale walked briskly. He reached the corner in front of the palace saloon that he had given his chauffeur as a rendezvous. Benson had not yet arrived. Consulting his watch, Jimmy Dale waited a minute, and then, taking out a little notebook, 
began to write rapidly under the rays of the street lamp. This, too, would save time, or at least preserve the schedule. It would save the two or three minutes necessary to give Benson verbal instructions, though he could, of course, have taken Benson along with him in the car, since their roads would lie in the same direction for part of the way. But he had definitely decided against that. If anything went amiss, it would be infinitely better for Benson that there should be no possibility of the two of them having been seen together in the car. He owed that to Benson. It was quite another matter that Benson, obeying orders, should have turned the car over to his employer here, where he had been instructed to do so. He tore the leaf from his notebook and folded it carefully. There was one minute left for Benson to make the rendezvous on the timetable set for... Yes, here he was now. A car drew up at the curb. Benson's clean-cut, strong young face showed in the light as he touched his cap. "'Good work, Benson,' said Jimmy Dale approvingly. "'What time is it?' Benson leant forward to consult the car's clock. "'By your watch, Benson,' said Jimmy Dale. He held his own in his hand. Benson looked at his wrist-watch. Five minutes of two, sir,' he said. "'Right,' said Jimmy Dale. He motioned Benson from the car. "'I'll take the car, Benson.' And then, as he swung into the driver's seat, he leant out and handed Benson the folded note. "'Follow these instructions to the letter, Benson,' he said quietly, "'and destroy that note. Good night.' The car turned and headed uptown. Jimmy Dale drove fast. The streets were deserted. The minutes passed. Ten, fifteen, eighteen. He kept glancing at the time, and nodded as he finally parked his car on a side street within half a block of one of the most exclusive residential sections of Fifth Avenue. He had taken nineteen minutes from the palace saloon. The black silk mask covered his face again, as he stole forward now, and slipped into an areaway that ran in the rear of the corner house on the avenue. The rest would be slower work. This was Martin K. Froome's residence. It was moonlight, light enough to see. There was a high fence here that flanked both sides of what was evidently a garage. Jimmy Dale swung himself over the fence and alighted in a small, cement-floored courtyard. He was across this in an instant, and another was lost in the shadows of a basement entrance. Again the little steel picklock was at work. The door opened and closed silently. Jimmy Dale stood inside. For a moment he listened, and then the diminutive flashlight in service again, darting its tiny gleams before him, Jimmy Dale moved forward once more, and, locating the stairs, began to climb them, and a moment later found himself standing in the main hall of the house. So far all was well. The library now. No, first the telephone. He must make sure that his memory had served him right on that score. He'd been here once or twice before, under quite different auspices, as a guest. The flashlight's ray played down the hall. Yes, it was all right. It was there on the little stand in an alcove near the foot of the central staircase. He could hardly have forgotten that rather unique door, shaped in a half-circle, which at will could transform the alcove into a booth. Jimmy Dale turned now. He was not quite so sure of the library, but the impression was strong that it was here at the rear. He tried a door on his right, the dining room. He stepped back then into the hall and opened the door on the opposite side. The flashlight circled the interior, went out, and Jimmy Dale closed the door softly behind him. His lips, beneath the mask, 
tightened now, as the flashlight, playing again through the darkness, focused on an open safe near the window at the rear of the room, and upon what had evidently been a very large proportion of the contents of the safe, which were now strewn about on the floor in front of it. He stepped forward quickly, and kneeling on the floor, began to search carefully beneath the litter of documents, papers, and books. A minute, two, three went by, and then Jimmie Dale stood up again. Between his fingers he held a cheap and tawdry shirt-stud. He stood looking at it for a moment, balancing it now in his hand, and a softer light crept into his eyes, and a strange smile tempered the grimness of his tightened lips. No, it wasn't worth much. Just a rhinestone. Just ten years in the penitentiary, that was all. And then Jimmie Dale shrugged his shoulders. The margin of time was narrowing. He slipped the shirt-stud into his pocket, and sent the flashlight's ray playing inquisitively around the room. There was still the letter that the police would receive in the morning, and which must be made to disprove even itself, be made to stand out so glaringly as a plant to settle a crime on an innocent man's shoulders that none could mistake it for what it was. And there was only one way to accomplish that. His eyes followed the ray of the flashlight. Yes, that single bracket light over there would do when the time came. He could not afford to be too generous. And now the window. He walked over to it and raised the drawn shade. It looked out on the courtyard. Silently, cautiously, he opened the window wide, ten feet to the ground. Well, it might be worse. At a quarter to three, he returned to the centre of the room and consulted his watch. He had not needed all of that extra ten minutes. He was four minutes to the good. He stood there in the darkness. He was very silent in the house and yet it was strange what queer noises even silence possessed, if one listened for them. They began very low, and grew louder, but always in a palpitating sort of way, and finally beat with almost thunderous clamour at the eardrums. The flashlight was on the dial of the watch again. Seventeen minutes to three. Benson would be at work now. It would take a minute or two, of course. He smiled with grim whimsicality. It always did. He had allowed for that. The flashlight held on the dial of the watch and suddenly went out. A quarter to three. Faintly, from the front of the house, the telephone rang, and Jimmie Dale was in action. The side light went on, filling the room with a soft, mellow glow. He stepped silently to the closed door and with his ear to the panel listened. The telephone rang again, and still again. And then, barely audible on the thickly carpeted stairs, he caught the sound of a footstep descending. And presently Jimmie Dale's lips twisted again in a grim smile. He could not hear, he did not have the receiver at his ear, but it was Benson speaking from a slot booth in the Grand Central Station where, though they might eventually trace the call, they would never trace Benson. It was Benson speaking, but the words were his, Jimmie Dale's. I don't want to appear in this, so never mind who I am. I couldn't find a phone any nearer, so it's about ten minutes ago that I saw a man climb over your back fence and steal into your house. I guess if you've got such a thing as a safe there, you'll know where to find him. And if you're quiet enough about it, you ought to get him yet. That was what Benson was saying. It was quite all right. The call would be traced but it would hold water. The Grand Central was just about within the ten minutes' range of the Froome's residence. Jimmie Dale's ear was still pressed against the door-panel. 
The footstep was mounting the stairs now, but evidently with extreme caution, for Jimmie Dale could scarcely catch a sound. It was probably the butler. Reinforcements. He would return with Mr. Froome's, perhaps, and an added footman or two. A minute. Two. The cautious tread was coming down the stairs again. Jimmie Dale retreated across the room to the open door of the safe. He crouched there, tense, his muscles rigid. In his hand now he held the little canvas sack of jewels, the string at the top untied. They were almost at the door there. And now? The door burst open. With a well-simulated startled cry of alarm, Jimmie Dale jumped to the window side of the safe, and as he jumped he allowed his arm apparently to hit sharply against the top of the safe door and knock the canvas bag from his grasp, strewing the floor with a sparkling heap of gems. He was darting for the window now. A voice roared out to him to halt. Frooms! Frooms himself, in dressing-gown, and behind Frooms two other men. And for a bare instant Jimmy Dale faced them. Then he vaulted for the window-sill. They had seen him, hadn't they? Quite plainly. Seen that he wasn't Culver. Stop! Stop, or I'll fire! Frooms yelled out. But Jimmy Dale was astride the window-sill now, and— a vivid flash like a fork of lightning seemed to leap toward him to sting and blister and bring him agony, and the room seemed to swirl and be full of deafening, racketing reports. He dropped to the ground outside, staggered, steadied himself, leapt across the courtyard, and swung the fence as a fusillade of shots followed him from the window. He was racing along the areaway now. Another instant, and he had flung himself into his car. It shot forward with a bound. He whipped off his mask, as he bent over the wheel. He was gnawing at his lips now, until the blood came. The car swung the corner and tore uptown. But it wouldn't steer properly. It swayed from side to side. No, it wasn't the car. It was himself. Something in his side tortured him, and something hot, sticky hot, was running down his leg. His head swam. Nausea strove to set its grip upon him. He fought it off. He'd been hit, of course, but it wasn't far to go. Not far to go. Not far to go. And queer sing-song brain. What? What was the matter? Everything was all right, wasn't it? They had seen the man who had tried to rob the safe and had left the jewels on the floor, hadn't they? And they knew it wasn't Culver because... It was extremely funny, wasn't it? Because Culver had a red head giddiness, nausea, hot and cold flashes. Jimmie Dale fought frantically for his senses. He drove, clinging to the wheel. It wasn't far. There wasn't any pursuit. They'd never find him if, if he could hold out just a little longer. A sort of mental fog settled upon him that blotted out time and distance, and the action was purely mechanical. And then he found himself staggering up the steps of his home on Riverside Drive, and at the top of the steps the door opened. He brushed his hand across his eyes. That was Jason, wasn't it? Jason had been sitting up again. "'Go to bed, Jason,' said Jimmy Dale severely. The old man's face was ashen. "'My God, Master Jim, sir! What's the matter?' he cried out wildly. Jimmy Dale lunged through the doorway. "'Nothing,' said Jimmy Dale. I was just looking for a shirt stud. You know the kind, Jason. Three for a nickel and... Jimmy Dale pitched forward, unconscious to the floor. 
End of chapter 20「there was a nervous disquiet upon him, growing with the minutes, obsessing him. He reached out to the bed-table for his watch. Half-past nine. For a moment he lay still, tracing with his eyes the shadow's fanciful shapes on the ceiling, and then suddenly he flung the covers from him, got out of bed, snatched up a dressing-gown, and crossed the room to an easy-chair by the window. He sat down and stared out into the night. Rest quiet he could no longer rest because his mind would no longer remain quiet but ground on and on like the turning of a mill-wheel that never ceased the first night when he had been wounded and the loss of blood had weakened him yes but not now thank god he had regained consciousness in time that night to prevent jason telephoning for a doctor with the papers full of the burglar in evening clothes who was believed to have been hit by a shot as he had leapt through the library window of the Froome's mansion on Fifth Avenue, it would have been perhaps a little awkward for Jimmy Dale to explain a bullet wound in his side, even to a trusted physician. It had been only a flesh wound. Jason and Benson between them had done famously with him here at home. It was healing now. That was three nights ago. It was still sore and stiff, he gritted his teeth as a twinge of pain caught him suddenly, but it was healing nicely. He had not stayed in bed any more than he could help after the first day, when he could elude Jason's watchfulness. He had been afraid of that, more afraid of doing that than of the wound itself. One got weak staying in bed. One's legs needed exercise, and there had been the combined lengths of the dressing-room and bedroom for surreptitious constitutionals. Well, he'd been well repaid for the wound, not merely in the sense that young Culver was probably walking the streets tonight a free man, but in the sense that there had come into his hands another clue, another instrument through which his chances of running the phantom to earth became at once now definite, tangible, and concrete. Bunty Myers, the red-faced underling, the chief tool of the phantom, it was Bunty Myers who had been talking to the Phantom that night when he, Jimmy Dale, had heard those voices which had seemed to come out of the nowhere in Mother Margot's room. Therefore, Bunty Myers knew where that conversation had taken place, and therefore, whether the man himself realized the full significance of it or not, Bunty Myers held the secret of the Phantom clue to the lair where his master hatched his devil's work. Jimmy Dale nodded to himself. It was a decided even drastic change from the phantom's accustomed line of action. From the time the phantom had physically disappeared as Gentleman Laroque, the man had drawn a veil of secrecy and seclusion about himself that had rarely been broken, certainly never to the extent of admitting anyone into the secret of his actual retreat before. True, he had many domiciles, many aliases. That was why the toxin had first called him the phantom. But this was the centre of the web, 
the one place that he jimmie dale had sought and struggled vainly with every resource at his command to find and now bunty myers had been admitted if not into the secret itself at least into the precincts of the hidden refuge why did it evidence weakness the first cracking of the line of defence it was certain that the phantom's ranks had become sadly thinned little sweeney perhaps the most versatile and cunning of the phantom's satellites was dead and two out of the four trusted pawns who had had their rendezvous in the back upstairs room at wally carrigan's club spud mcguire and muller were dead the percentage was very heavy there remained only bunty myers the kitten and mother margot the circle was narrowing was that why where previously mother margot had always been called from the pushcart on thompson street to the telephone in the rear of that malodorous little second-hand store to act as the mouthpiece of the voice where previously all communications had passed through her the phantom had now changed his tactics and admitted his tools to personal interviews a frown half of perplexity half of annoyance gathered on jimmie dale's forehead this might or might not be the reason very much more likely not he had forgotten for the moment that mother margot had been away that night he brushed his hand across his eyes as he winced suddenly again with pain he wondered if mother margot were back yet that was a curious telephone booth at the back of the second-hand store where she received her messages a side door that opened on the lane and the booth in a sort of back storeroom he had of course investigated the place almost immediately after that night mrs kinsey's when mother margot had imparted her unwilling information about it and the result of that investigation had been to make it plain that the telephone itself was purely a part just as mother margot's rooms were of the phantom's equipment and that mezzo himself who was a doddering almost senile old man was not even a pawn merely a convenience the old italian whose hearing was probably just good enough and no more to distinguish the ringing of the bell whose trade was among a clientele far removed from such luxuries could have no possible use for a telephone let alone one in a booth and less possible excuse for the expense that one involved he was simply paid to keep it there that was obvious well it had served still another purpose since he jimmie dale had not infrequently used it himself the phantom was not the only one who called mother margot to the phone or the only one to whom the old hag paid allegiance he smiled grimly perhaps he counted too much on that because he jimmie dale as the gray seal had once caught mother margot in the act of double-crossing her own pals it was no guarantee that though he might hold her in a sort of allegiance therefrom she would be above double-crossing him too he shook his head no he had watched her too closely he was not prepared to say what she might do if she got the chance but so far he was satisfied that she had played straight with him only so far the little information she had had to give had not brought him much nearer to his goal his mind reverted to bunty myers bunty myers had come out of the affair that night at twisty munns when he had shot kid greg without a breath of suspicion attaching to him again jimmie dale smiled grimly he remembered that as he had run down the stairs with the awakened tenement howling about his ears the thought had flashed through his mind that if twisty munn had recognized bunty myers the latter would have the police dragnet sweeping the city yes 
and the country for him, and he would be hard put to it to find cover. But, as it had turned out, whether Twisty Munn had really recognized Bunty Myers or not, Twisty Munn had remained silent on the subject. Yesterday's papers had been full of the affair. Twisty Munn was by nature an ingenious and versatile liar, and he had run true to form. Himself in the very act of receiving the stolen contents of Martin K. Froome's safe when the shooting occurred, Twisty Munn had, of course, as an incentive for remaining silent, the undesirability of implicating himself in a criminal transaction. And again, he might not actually have known who Bunty Myers was, or, if he had, the fear of reprisals if he snitched might also very logically account for his reticence. Twisty Munn, so Twisty Munn swore, knew absolutely nothing about the matter, except that he and Kid Gregg had been sitting in his room, talking, when the door had burst open and a couple of men he had never seen before had entered. Kid Gregg had jumped to his feet and pulled his gun, and just as he fired, one of the others had dropped him. He, Twisty Munn, didn't know what it was all about, so help him God. But he had a hunch it was a personal row between Kid Gregg and one of the other men over some mole or other. Quite so. Into Jimmy Dale's dark eyes there came an ironical gleam. There was nothing to disprove it. Twisty Munn's story fitted into the balance of the night as perfectly as though it were the truth. Well, that left Bunty Myers free. That was what counted. It would be easier to find Bunty Myers now than if he had taken to cover from the police. And it was Bunty Myers that he, Jimmy Dale, wanted now. And then Jimmy Dale shook his head again, in sudden irritation now. Had he forgotten, too, that since the night Little Sweeney had masqueraded as Isaac Shiftel and paid for it with his life, Bunty Myers had already sought cover perhaps more as a precautionary measure than because he was actually wanted for that affair, but nevertheless had completely forsaken his usual haunts. And had he also forgotten a night not long ago when, as Smarlinghue, he had searched vainly through the length and breadth and in the most hidden places of the underworld for the man. He had wanted Bunty Myers then, hadn't he? And he had not found him. The strong, square jaws locked with a snap. Yes. That was true, but he wanted the man more now, wanted him vitally. He would find him, that was all. And then what? Jimmy Dale's laugh, short, hard, mirthless, rang low through the room. And then what? The answer to that was simple. The buttons were off the foils. What Bunty Myers knew he would be made to tell. Bunty Myers wasn't tired of life, and if he found himself cornered by, say, the Grey Seal, and given the choice of telling where he had had that conversation with the Phantom, or of paying the price of silence with his life, there was very little question as to what the man would do, for out of his own experience Bunty Myers would not credit the Grey Seal with trifling. Nor would there be any trifling. The knowledge Bunty Myers now possessed meant that the Phantom at last could be trapped. It meant that at last her life— the toxins could be made safe. The nightmare of horror which must even now be turning her soul sick within her could be brought to an end. That sunshine could come, and love, and the joy of living could be hers once more, and... With a low cry, Jimmy Dale leant suddenly with his elbows on the window-sill, staring out into the blackness of the night. It seemed to be beckoning, calling to him. She was out there somewhere. Was she?
Was he even certain that she was still alive? Something cold, an icy grip, seemed to clutch at his heart. Since the night at Miser's Cross, true to her stated determination to keep him out of the shadows, as she called them, that enveloped her, that held her life in peril, he had had no word from her. Jimmy Dale was gnawing at his lips now. His arms fell from the windowsill, and his hands clenched at his sides. She had simply kept her word. That was what she had said she would do. Why, then, this sudden access that verged on panic? He laughed out shortly again. It wasn't sudden. It wasn't a new face. It hadn't just at this moment germinated in his brain. It was what had been growing there ever since he had lain wounded in bed. It was the seat of that constant disquiet and restlessness that was culminating now in... What? He was on his feet, and now he began to pace the room. To protect her life she had arrayed herself against the merciless cunning of the phantom. Not a man, a monster. There was no middle course between them. There was but one end. One of the two must fall. And the phantom was still safe, still secure, still at his hell-born deviltries. And she? A bead of moisture oozed out on Jimmy Dale's forehead. He flirted it away with a sweep of his hand. It meant little that her silence was exactly in accordance with what she herself had stated was her proposed line of action. There was something that meant infinitely more. She might propose, but immeasurably true was the trite old saying applied to her that she could not always dispose. He, as smiling you, as the grey seal, excluded from working in conjunction with her, had worked nevertheless in the days and weeks that were gone with identically the same end in view as she, working independently, had had the unearthing of the phantom. Why had their paths then, in spite of herself, not crossed since that night in Miser's Cross room, save perhaps on one occasion when he had presumed that the tip to the police in reference to the jewel robbery at the Linestalls had come from her? He had been in touch with the phantom, with the phantom's criminal efforts, since then. And if she was still free, still alive, and making progress in her fight, how was it that she and he had not inevitably been brought into contact with each other? His hands clenched tighter. And there was more even than that, one outstanding brutal thing, ugly in its promise, that brought him a deadly fear. She had made progress while she had been mistress of her actions, she had said so in her notes up to the time when those notes had ceased. Her appearance at Miser's Cross that night had proved that she had penetrated the phantom's outer defences, and had had a certain foreknowledge of the man's proposed coups. Therefore, the presumption was that, had all still been well with her, she would have had knowledge of what had happened three nights ago, and she would have known that he, Jimmy Dale, had been shot. His brain seemed to whirl the blood to pound in hammer-beats at his temples. Not a sign had come from her, not a word over the telephone, not a message of any kind, direct or indirect. His mind, his soul, seemed to falter now before the ugly deduction that flung itself pitilessly at him. She loved him as he loved her, he knew that. She loved him with a love so great and unselfish that daily, hourly, she had faced alone the peril that menaced her, so that he might not also be in danger, so that he might be sheltered from it. Would she then, if she knew he had been shot, and if she were able, even with her last effort to communicate with him, have remained silent, 
made no attempt to discover how serious was his condition, or whether indeed he were alive or dead. Alive or dead. The phrase battered at his brain. It applied to her. White-faced, he stood at the window again and stared out into the darkness. It was black. How black it was. And she was out there in the night somewhere. Somewhere. Alive or dead. Inactive. His wound as an excuse. He swore savagely now in his emotion. What was he? A weakling? Too long he had stayed here now, inactive, when she, she was out there somewhere, perhaps dead. Something caught in his throat. His hands raised above his head and clenched until under the tightened skin the knuckles showed like knobs, bloodless, white. If she were dead, he laughed. It was a merciless sound. He swung from the window and went into the dressing room. He began to dress. How should he dress? Tweets or dinner clothes? That sounded queer, as though his brain were unhinged. He wasn't going to a party. Foolish word, that. Party. He began to get into his dinner clothes. He knew what he was doing now. There had been what Jason would have called a rush of blood to the head for an instant, blurring him a bit, as it were. His sight wasn't so bad. A twinge or two. Nothing to speak of. There was something else out there in the night. A clue to pick up somewhere. He didn't know how or where. It might be a Smarlinghue somewhere in one of the hidden sinkholes of the underworld, that he would pick up the trail of Bunty Myers, or Bunty Myers' pal, the kitten. Or if Mother Margot were back. Well, it was as a man in a dinner coat and masked that Mother Margot knew the grey seal. He was dressing for Mother Margot. Quite the thing, wasn't it? To dress for the ladies? Damn it! He must hold himself in. He stepped to the liquor stand and poured himself out a little brandy and drank it. He responded instantly to the stimulant. It steadied him. Over his underclothes, he strapped on the leather girdle with its kit of blued steel implements nestling in little upright pockets, and where nestled too the thin metal case that contained the diamond-shaped grey paper adhesive seals, the insignia of the grey seal. He put on his shirt, his waistcoat and jacket, and into the side pocket of his jacket he slipped his automatic. He was dressed now. He stared at himself in the glass. Jason would have to be told. It wasn't fair to the faithful old man to slip out without a word. Jason would be mad with anxiety if he found him gone. Jimmy Dale rang the bell. The reflection in the mirror returned him a twisted contortion of the lips. The damned thing was trying to ape his smile, wasn't it? It looked like a death's head, gaunt and pasty white, with lines like an old man's. Well, what of it? He felt all right, except that the bandage was infernally tight. A knock sounded at the door. Come in, said Jimmy Dill. Jason's white head appeared in the doorway, and then the door was shut with nervous haste, and the old butler came hurriedly forward across the room. Master Jim, sir, he gasped. Master Jim, what, what are you doing, sir? Jimmy Dale smiled. "'I'm going out, Jason,' he said. The old man cast an anxiously suspicious glance at his master. "'Yes, of course, Master Jim, sir,' he said soothingly. "'But the exertion of dressing, sir, if you'll just sit down for a little while now, Master Jim, then by and by—' "'Jason,' said Jimmy Dale, whimsically, 
You couldn't be a fraud even in a minor degree. You're too transparent. I'm quite myself. I'm not in delirium. I'm simply going out. The old man's face grew a little white. You can't mean it, Master Jim, he faltered. In the state you're in, sir, it's likely to cost you your life to go out. It's likely to cost me more than that to stay in, said Jimmy Dale, quietly. The old man twisted his hands together. He coughed in a sort of helpless way. I'm an old man, Master Jim, sir. The tears were welling into Jason's eyes. And you'll pardon me, Master Jim, for taking liberties. But when you were a baby, I dandled you, Master Jim, on my knee, and... And I know there's something strange and... And danger that's come into your life. And... It isn't my place to ask what it is, but but for God's sake, Master Jim, sir, don't you go out until you're well enough. Jimmy Dale stepped toward the old man and laid both hands on the other's shoulders, gently. Jason, he said steadily, get me an overcoat, lightweight, dark collar, and a slouch hat. Tell Benson I'm waiting for him, and to pamper my infirmities will take the limousine tonight. He turned Jason around and pushed the old man quietly toward the door. "'Look sharp, please, Jason,' he said. The door closed behind the old butler. For an instant, Jimmy Dale stood staring at the door. His face softened, almost a mistiness in the dark, steady eyes. Then he turned abruptly to the liquor stand again. "'I guess perhaps I'll need it,' he muttered. He took out a small silver flask, filled it with brandy, and slipped it into his pocket. He went out then, closing the door behind him. As he descended the stairs, he caught the sound of the car on the driveway, coming from the garage at the rear of the house. That was Benson, another Jason. He felt suddenly humbled. Benson young, Jason old, at the extremes of life, and each, without an instant's hesitation, would give their all for him. It was a strange, strange thing, the love of men one for another, the love of these two for him. He had accepted it all too matter-of-factly, perhaps, in the past, not stopping to appraise it always for its immeasurable worth, or, when he thought of it, perhaps priding himself on it only as a possession that other men did not have, like a suit of clothes, perhaps, made by an exclusive tailor, where the same pattern was not supplied to anyone else. He did not know how he had won it. He took his coat and hat from Jason in the hallway. The old man's lips were twitching. "'God bless you, Jason,' said Jimmy Dale suddenly, and swung through the door. At the curb, Benson, the chauffeur, touched his cap as he reached out to open the door of the big closed car, then hesitated. "'You'll excuse me, Mr. Dale,' he stammered, "'but—but but, I—' Jimmy Dale smiled. "'It's a wonderful night, isn't it, Benson, for a drive?' he said. "'West Broadway, Benson. And—oh, yes—' Stop anywhere within a block of Thompson Street. Yes, sir, said Benson mechanically, and opened the door. Jimmy Dale stepped into the car. The door closed. He saw Benson, in the act of swinging into his seat, turn and face for an instant the open doorway of the lighted vestibule where Jason stood. Benson's shoulders lifted in a helpless gesture. What the hell can I do? said Benson's shoulders, eloquently. End of chapter 21
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.